Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Voice of Pancreatic Cancer podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Weinberg with the Sina Magowitz Foundation. We're a nonprofit committed to the awareness, prevention, and cure of pancreatic cancer. One of the ways we work toward that goal is through partnerships like ours with the Medical College of Wisconsin. Today, we'll hear from MCW's Dr. Douglas B. Evans, world-renowned pancreatic cancer surgeon and research oncologist who shares the latest in pancreatic cancer surgery and the importance of second opinions. We'll be joined by two of his advanced practice providers, Gabby Pipedict and Lauren Newell. Before we begin, I'd like to take a moment to say thank you to our generous donors. Because of you, we're saving lives. So Dr. Evans, I'd love it if you would take it away. Yeah, thanks so much, Miranda. We're, we're thrilled to be partnering a little bit uh, closer with the Sina Mangowitz Foundation and uh, certainly anything that can be done to uh, improve the outcome for patients and their families with pancreas cancer is what we're all about. So it's, it's absolutely fantastic. And these podcasts are a tremendous way uh, for patients and their families to learn more about the disease and, and potentially the options that are available to them for treatment. Um, I'm chair of the Department of Surgery at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and we're very fortunate here to have uh, an endowed uh, program of pancreatic cancer research and treatment. Our program was endowed by uh, Marianne and Charles Laban, a, a wonderful family here in Milwaukee, uh, who endowed our program. Our director is Dr. Susan Sai, and we're, we're thrilled to have a, a multidisciplinary group of uh, physicians uh, we have uh, surgeons, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, gastroenterologists, um, radiologists, pathologists, uh, just a, a, an incredible array of, of physicians uh, who care for patients with this disease. And that really is one of the challenges with pancreas, pancreas cancer is it takes a village to care for patients with this, with this disease. And, and I think that's the, the challenge that many institutions have. Uh, the glue that puts that keeps all of the doctors together and, and results in the best possible patient experience uh, involves our nurse practitioners, practitioners and physician's assistants. I think they're, they're simply invaluable as medicine has become increasingly complex and communication, you would think, has become a little bit easier. Um, now with uh, texting and um, and Facebook and social media and everything else that we have, but actually uh, getting a hold of your doctor is oftentimes uh, fairly difficult. Uh, we have a little radio show that's, uh, that's on Saturday afternoons and oftentimes we talk about pancreas cancer. We've certainly given a few shout outs to the Sina Mangowitz Foundation. It's called The Word on Medicine on Saturday afternoons at, at four in the afternoon on iHeartMedia. And I just was working on a program for this weekend and um, my closing comments are actually about uh, communication and, and oftentimes how difficult it is to communicate effectively. Um, but as you can tell, I can go on forever. I think it would be great for, uh, Gabby, and to and for Gabby and Lauren to introduce themselves and, and then we can go from there. Uh, Gabby, do you wanna start? Sure, my name is uh, Gabby. I'm a nurse practitioner here in the um, uh, Department of uh, Surgical Oncology, and um, I've worked in this role for uh, just over three years. Um, uh, here in the division, we do um, work with uh, physicians closely. So I, for example, work with Dr. Evans 
Um, and Lauren, um, you know, works with Dr. Sai, and so we work very intimately with um, our attendings um, to care for um, our patients that are currently undergoing treatment for pancreas cancer. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Thank you, Miranda, for having us today. Um, I'm Lauren Newell, um, and I'm also a nurse practitioner in the Division of Surgical Oncology. Um, like Gabby said, I uh, work closely with physicians. I personally work with Dr. Susan Sai um, that Dr. Evans mentioned earlier. Um, I've been in my current role as a nurse practitioner for about a year and a half um, here um, with the pancreatic cancer program. Um, but I actually been with Freighter in the medical college um, since 2014. Um, and I originally was a nurse on the inpatient floor where uh, Dr. Evans and Dr. Sai um, will send their patients um, after undergoing um, many of the various surgeries that we do um, for pancreas cancer and other cancers. Um, it was my first job at a nursing school, um, and I kind of fell in love with not only the patient population, but all of the um, team members that I work with, and uh, we have a great team here, and I'm so lucky to continue my career um, with everybody. Well, thank you all for being here, and um, we're really excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, Dr. I'd love to start with kind of what drew you into pancreatic cancer specifically, and then Gabby and Lauren, um, if you have any thoughts on this as well, if you um, would like to share. Well, I can start things off. I, when I was a medical student in Boston and, um, and as a fourth year medical student, worked with a, a, a very well-known surgeon uh, for a couple months named John, uh, John Brash, uh, whose main interest was, was pancreas cancer. And, uh, and that really stimulated me to, to think more about the disease. When I was a surgery resident at Dartmouth, uh, I worked with Richard Carl, who also was a, a, an incredibly well-known, very talented uh, surgeon and, and pushed me in that direction. And along with uh, Bob Critchlow, uh, ended up uh, uh, sending me actually to Houston, where you are now, for my fellowship in surgical oncology at, at MD Anderson. And I was lucky enough to work with a huge number of really talented people there. Uh, probably one of the most uh, influential surgeon, surgeons was Fred Ames, uh, along with Charles Balch, and, and a number of, uh, of really talented younger people who ended up uh, being my partners. And I stayed on staff there for about 19 years before coming here to the Medical College of Wisconsin, and realized early on that pancreatic cancer was, was an unsolved health problem. Uh, in the United in the United States right now, it's uh, it's the fourth leading cause of adult cancer death. There actually is a clustering of pancreatic cancer in the state of Wisconsin. So in Wisconsin, it has now overcome uh, breast and colorectal cancer, and is now the second leading cause of adult cancer death in the state of Wisconsin, behind just lung cancer. Uh, and for our listeners, um, uh, eighty percent of lung cancer is tobacco related. About twenty percent isn't. And so the incidence of lung cancer is expected to go down um, as uh, people are certainly smoking uh, much less. Uh, pancreas cancer, on the other hand, uh, affects only nice people. Uh, the risk factor for getting uh, pancreatic cancer is being a nice person. And uh, there are not really any environmental or, or personal risk factors other than in a small percentage of patients, uh, there probably is an inherited predisposition uh, that's why under Susan Tsai's leadership, we have uh, one of very few high-risk uh, high uh, screening programs here at the Medical College of Wisconsin for patients with pancreas cancer. Uh, there probably is a, a relationship to tobacco use. Uh, there's the so-called Patrick Swayze phenotype of pancreatic cancer. People who start smoking really early in life uh, probably have an increased risk 
there probably is a relationship with diet and obesity, uh, the so-called Luciano Pavarotti form of pancreatic cancer. Uh, Pavarotti, as, as many of the uh, people watching the podcast uh, appreciate, uh, also died of, of pancreatic cancer. And there probably is a relationship with diet and obesity, but for at least 85 to 90% of patients, there is no real uh, predisposing factor. And therefore, um, for people like me who spend basically 24 seven, uh, 365 thinking about this disease, um, it's, a, it's a tremendous challenge. And as I mentioned, because uh, only really nice people get pancreas cancer, uh, the patients that uh, Gabby and Lauren and I work with um, every week are, are just uh, uh, the most wonderful people in the world. They're really inspirational. So it's virtually impossible not to extend every extra effort uh, to do everything we can uh, for these patients. And in partnering with the Sina Mangowitz Foundation right now, I think you've heard from uh, Dr. Susan Tsai and Dr. Jen Genier on a really neat clinical trial that we're doing in partnership with the Sina Mangowitz Foundation. And I think we're all about taking innovative thoughts and ideas uh, from the laboratory bench and bringing them into the patient bedside, hopefully in the form of a clinical trial to try to make a difference uh, for patients and their families. And you know, we're, I think the last decade or so uh, in the treatment of pancreatic cancer has really witnessed a tremendous improvement. I mean, just for example, um, uh, I think uh, uh, Susan responded to Roger Mangowitz with, with, a, uh, with an answer to a question was how many uh, five-year survivors do you have now? And in our database, we had 100 uh, patients who had, uh, who had lived five years after a pancreatic cancer diagnosis. And, uh, and our database only goes back uh, 11 or 12 years, um, maybe, maybe even 10, but you know, a relatively short period of time. And this shows you the, the incredible strides we have made uh, in the last decade. This certainly would not have been possible when I uh, first went on faculty uh, in Houston in 1990. Would, would, was really only a dream at that time. Those numbers, I mean, they really are just incredible. I mean, Roger and, and the rest of our team, we were blown away whenever we received those stats. Um, Gabby, oh, Lauren, absolutely. What, is there anything that drew you specifically to pancreatic cancer? I started, you know, on the inpatient floor as a nurse. And um, just to echo what Dr. Evans said, that this disease only happens to the um, most wonderful people. Um, and I think um, one of the main reasons I enjoy working here um, is obviously the team that we work with, um, but the patients are just so thankful and the job just is so fulfilling personally as well. Yeah, and prior to um, completing my master's degree, I was actually a nurse in the operating room and actually worked with Dr. Evans. Um, so the opportunity presented itself to, um, to work with him as an APP. Um, you know, had it not been for um, uh, family member who had pancreas cancer, I probably wouldn't um, have really known anything about it or how to even treat pancreas cancer. Prior to working with Dr. Evans, um, unfortunately, my um, uncle um, uh, was diagnosed with pancreas cancer. And um, for those of you that can uh, see all the consonants in my last name, you can tell that uh, my background is Polish and uh, he actually lived in Poland. And so the treatment options, knowing what I know now, the treatment options were very limited at the time. Um, unfortunately, he ended up um, succumbing to the disease, um, but things like genetic testing, um, 
things like um, neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Um, those are simply just not available. And um, it, knowing what I know now, it's really amazing um, the things that we do and the outcomes that we have. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your uncle, but um, I mean, it sounds like you've been able to make strides working with Dr. Evans and um, Dr. Evans, I mean, you have such a reputation for surgery specifically. Um, uh, we wanted to talk about and highlight Whipple surgery. And uh, we are hearing more obviously about the robotic element that's come into um, the conversation these days. So I'd, I would love it if you could kind of explain the differences sure. and uh, just kind of what you're seeing trending. Well, what, what we've done, first of all, from a, from a, a, a higher uh, kind of a 3,000 foot perspective, what we've tried to do um, over the last few decades is find the best possible ways to, to combine drug therapy, chemotherapy and related drugs, um, radiation therapy and surgery in a way that will result in, in the patients living the longest. I mean, that the goal here is to provide uh, patients and their families as many good quality days on patient on on planet Earth as we can. I mean, people people shouldn't lose sight of the goal. I mean, that is the ultimate goal. How we achieve that goal is are really the details. Whether we use chemotherapy, um, uh, immunotherapy, vaccines, uh, uh, various other types of complementary therapies, radiation therapy, and surgery. The goal is keeping people feeling well in the best possible shape for as long as possible. Sometimes that results in a cure, uh, uh, sometimes that doesn't, but, but that certainly is the goal. Um, right now, I think it's safe to say that surgery is, is usually necessary, albeit not sufficient to achieve that goal, to achieve, certainly to achieve a cure. And if you look at many of the papers that we've published from here at, uh, at MCW, uh, in patients who receive uh, chemotherapy, which, which we kind of use the term systemic therapy or drug therapy, plus radiation, plus surgery. So in, in effect, we get all of the treatment into them that we plan to at the time of diagnosis. For those patients, about 40% of them are long-term survivors. Um, uh, and once a patient gets out to about four to five years uh, with no evidence of recurrence, the likelihood of a recurrence is really quite low. I mean, it still is theoretically possible and they may, may experience a recurrence in the, in the lungs, for example, but it's quite rare. And that occurs in about 40% of patients. Unfortunately, the cancer comes back right now in about 60% of patients. Again, uh, statistics which are far greater than, um, than anything that, that was, was present in the past. And uh, in about, in about uh, half of those patients, so 30% of the total, uh, the cancer doesn't recur for a couple of years. Um, and unfortunately, uh, in 30% of those patients, the cancer recurs uh, early, within the first two years uh, after surgery. So what I tell patients before the operation, uh, because we typically operate last here, we try to deliver our systemic therapy and radiation before surgery. It certainly is easier for the patient to tolerate it. And also there are a number of biologic, physiologic, and, and potentially immunologic reasons why those treatments would be more effective given before surgery rather than after surgery. But what I tell them is um, 
you know, there is a, about a 30% chance that, uh, that the operation will be uh, unsuccessful. In other words, even though they, we do the surgery and they recover from the operation, the cancer will be back within a year or two of the operation, which we would view as, uh, as, a, as a failure in, the, in, the, in our treatment. Um, that means that there's, um, there's a, about a 70% chance that they will derive benefit from surgery. And I think that's really, that's really important. I think uh, oftentimes uh, people, our, our patients and their family just assume that if we can surgically remove a tumor, um, it's gonna clearly provide benefit, but that always isn't the case. And that's why we carefully assess the patients that we operate upon. Um, you know, there really is, um, uh, we try to completely avoid major complications and certainly surgery-related death um, with uh, pancreas surgery. Uh, the Whipple operation was first coined by uh, Alan uh, Oldfather Whipple uh, back in 1935 when he first described the operation. He did it uh, in two stages because it was felt to be too big an operation to do it once. Um, they had a, they didn't have the equipment that we have today. I mean, just you, you can only imagine in the 1930s and 40s, it really wasn't until the 1960s when uh, Dr. Brash, who I mentioned previously, uh, Dr. John Cameron from uh, Johns Hopkins and, and others really pioneered uh, how we do the operation. Uh, Bill Traverso, Howard Reber, just a, a tremendous number of, uh, of if you will, uh, fathers of, of pancreatic surgery. And I think now um, the operation is, is also moving into, uh, into minimally invasive technology. Um, and by minimally invasive, I mean without an incision. Uh, if, we're gonna, if we do the operation with an open incision, then that incision usually goes from about the breastbone, which is the top of the belly, uh, down to the belly button. And uh, I, I, do the, uh, I use an incision that's a simple straight line from the breastbone to the belly button. Uh, with laparoscopy or robotic surgery, uh, the incisions are smaller. Um, I think uh, the challenge with, uh, with certainly the Whipple operation, which removes the right side of the pancreas, and that includes um, uh, the gallbladder, bile duct, the duodenum. It, it may include the lower part of the stomach. Uh, the challenge with, uh, with that operation being done um, uh, robotically or laparoscopically is that most surgeons uh, would not uh, be comfortable uh, removing blood vessels or dealing with blood vessel and tumor uh, interaction uh, without an incision. And, the, and I think the second thing is, is as the operation becomes larger in magnitude, so it, it takes most people, depending on what is done, anywhere from four to eight hours uh, to do a, a Whipple operation. And obviously the more complicated the operation, the longer it takes. As the operation becomes longer, then yeah. the size of the incision probably becomes of lesser significance. So I think right now it's safe to say that in surgery, um, there certainly are, are some very talented surgeons who uh, perform a standard or routine Whipple operation laparoscopically and robotically. Um, uh, it's uncommon for larger tumors, uh, which involve uh, the associated veins and arteries, uh, for okay. that to be performed uh, laparoscopically or robotically. If the left side of the pancreas is going to be removed, 
uh, and the operation typically would be called a distal pancreatectomy, then that is more commonly uh, or routinely performed uh, laparoscopically or uh, robotically. I think here at the Medical College of Wisconsin, because uh, it's typically the smaller tumors uh, that are managed um, uh, robotically uh, or laparoscopically, we tend to use the robotic approach, the robotic platform. Um, it's, uh, we try to concentrate those operations in one surgeon. So one of our partners, Kathleen Christians, who's incredibly right. talented, and we'll have to definitely do a podcast with Kathleen. Uh, she tends to do all of the robotic operations because if you think about it for a minute, uh, somewhere between um, 25 to 30% of patients with pancreas cancer will end up going to the operating room, maybe a little higher in, in some areas, um, but only a fraction of those patients will have uh, smaller tumors that were diagnosed earlier. And therefore, it's only a fraction of those patients that will, that will actually be amenable to a robotic uh, pancreatectomy. And, uh, and surgery is no different than, um, than playing sports. Um, I, tend, I kind of like basketball a lot. And so uh, I use the analogy that it's no different than shooting foul shots. Uh, the more foul shots you shoot, the more you practice, the better you'll get at it. Uh, so what we try to do here is for the robotic platform, we try to concentrate that with one surgeon. Uh, so that uh, she can be really good at it, and uh, our results will be just as good as with an open operation. So I hope that kind of that makes covered the, the basics of, uh, of surgery, if you will. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, and um, it really is, just depends on the patient. Uh, I think we'll, we'll have to see what happens. I think the problem is, is um, there, there, you know, pancreas cancer is a relatively low incidence, incident disease. So, um, you know, the, the likelihood of, of basically there's about 150 patients with pancreas cancer per every million population. And if you then, if you then assume that only 20 or 25% of those patients will have a tumor that is operable, uh, unfortunately, the cancer is inoperable in, in many patients at the time of diagnosis. So even if we say 30% of that, um, you know, we're dealing with relatively small numbers, and it's so important that surgeons are experienced uh, in the field. I think, uh, you know, right now there's, a, there's an appropriate trend in medicine of tremendous subspecialization in cancer surgery. So, for example, I do pancreas and endocrine surgery. That's the, the number of, the, number of um, the different forms of operations that I do are relatively small. I do pancreas surgery. I operate on thyroid cancer, uh, uh, the parathyroid glands, and the ad adrenal tumors, and, um, and rare and unusual endocrine tumors of the gastrointestinal tract. So that's the extent of my, of my clinical practice, and I operate two to three days a week. So, and, and I think that that kind of volume is really necessary to be good at, at what someone does. So I think one of the problems with robotic pancreatic surgery is, is the experience of, of the surgeon. And I think um, we'll have to see where that goes. Right now, that's a kind of an unsolved uh, area of controversy outside of major centers. I think here we see a large uh, number of patients with pancreas cancer. We also focus the robotic platform on one surgeon. Right. And therefore, she's 
um, she's at the ro robot every other week or every other other week doing a pancreas operation. And I think that's necessary for her to get really good at it. Um, that is not necessarily possible at, at every at every institution. Okay. Yeah. I mean, my 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 practice is largely focused on on larger tumors, the the patients who have uh, blood vessel involvement. That's been kind of my area of interest and in, in what I've focused on. Awesome. Well, switching gears a little bit, um, we would love to talk more about um, our partnership. I know you mentioned the the clinical trial um, that we've been fortunate to be a part of. I would love to hear um, how you got involved and introduced to Roger and Magowitz Foundation. Well, I'm one of uh, one of three physicians on the National Advisory Council, um, which is the uh, which is the philanthropic arm of uh, TGen or the Translational Genomics Research Institute. Uh, they're also affiliated with City of Hope Cancer Center in California. Uh, TGen was started by Dr. Dan von Hoff, who's an internationally known uh, physician scientist and oncologist, uh, really a, an incredibly talented man. And, uh, and the National Advisory Council has invited uh, applications for grant funding. So. Uh, we submitted um, a grant proposal to the National Advisory Council involving um, a really unique clinical trial that uh, I think Dr. Sai and Dr. Ye have have talked about on a on a separate podcast that really uses an, an incredibly unique technology that Dr. Jen Jen Ye developed at the University of North Carolina. And like many great efforts, this is a collaboration between UNC uh, Medical College of Wisconsin and Honor Health and TGen in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and uh, fortunately, uh, that grant was funded and it was actually funded by the Sina Mangowitz Foundation, which then allowed us the opportunity to get to know Roger a little bit more. Uh, I've, been, uh, I've been to Phoenix a couple times for the, um, uh, for the end of year uh, gala events that, uh, that the National Advisory Council has, um, has uh, put on. And I think it was a it was a great opportunity to meet people who are really passionate uh, about this disease and making a difference. I think uh, I would view um, Roger Mangowitz and the Cena Mangowitz Foundation and and everything that you're doing um, kind of in kind of in two in two big uh, large buckets. I think n number one is um, helping people, and I think that's what's so great about uh, about everything that you do. Uh, it's it's not it's more than just advocacy, it's um, it's adding uh, compassion and affection uh, to people who are really in need. And I think for anyone who has uh, listened to Roger or spent any time with him, uh, I think um, many uh, organizations try to provide compassionate care. I think what Roger and the Sina Mangowitz does, and it's largely. Um, in, it's probably in the air conditioning units. It's all I can think of. In the air conditioning units in, in Houston and Hawaii um, is its affection. And I think that's what people feel and they feel comforted. They get accurate information from people who really care about them. And then I think the second thing that the Sina Mangowitz is trying to do is it's trying to, um, it's trying to really advance uh, the, care, the, the treatment of this disease. And I think they're doing it by funding innovative, cutting edge, impactful clinical trials. 
And, uh, and that's how we will make a difference um, in the treatment of this disease. So I think it's a great relationship. We're thrilled to, um, to be associated with uh, the Cena Manguitz Foundation, which is a, a tremendous organization that, uh, that just has a huge heart. And I think it's, it's wonderful for us. And I think, um, uh, lastly, I'll leave you with, the, with one thing that's important for, um, for Gabby, Lauren, and me um, is, to, is, to, is to stay in touch with people like Roger and um, uh, and with uh, all of the podcasts and everything else you do, because it's so easy for us to do, to create a little bit of um, of fatigue from from our our work. I mean, it's um, it's hard work, and and sometimes it's sad. Uh, although we have some great happy moments, uh, we have some sad times too. And I think being associated with foundations, uh, advocacy groups. For uh, people like Roger, uh, I mean, it's uplifting for us, and it, and it's uh, and it gives us a, a jolt and an inspiration as well. Well, that's so wonderful to hear, and it's it's an honor for us to be in partnership with you guys. I know uh, the first thing that you mentioned is bringing uh, that accurate information to patients and their families. That's something that we've already taken steps with you guys to um, provide to patients. Uh, Let's talk about second opinions. I know you guys have a program already. Why is it so important to get a second opinion? And maybe this is something that uh, Gabby or Lauren want to touch on as well. Yeah, that's great. If you want to start and then, and then I can maybe give a little bit of the history of the, of the program afterwards. Sure. Sure. Well, we yeah. do have a second yeah. opinion program here um, uh, that um, is quite active. Um, so what that would entail is um, if a patient <clears throat> like one of our physicians to uh, review their medical records and perhaps um, provide an additional um, opinion or thought on their treatment, um, they would contact our new patient coordinator. Um, so we have someone um, that contacts all new patients. They obtain some basic information where their treatment has been so far, what imaging studies they've had done. Um, and then that new patient coordinator uh, works on getting all those records and all those images here. So the patient um, uh, does not have to do that. Um, it can be a little bit of a, um, a runaround to get all the images sent. So we work on all of that. Uh, and then once the imaging is here, um, Lauren and myself um, would review those records and make sure that we um, have all the information that we need. And then either Dr. Evans or Dr. Sai um, would then review the patient's record um, almost as if they were here for a, a consultation. Um, and then we would subsequently reach out to them um, to, to give our thoughts on their treatment to date. And, and I think it's important also for, for all of our um, viewers to understand that second opinions come in a variety of different forms. Um, you know, the, there, there are a lot of second opinions which go, which go behind the scenes. In other words, um, especially now in this, in this uh, post-pandemic era of enhanced um, video conferencing and everything. Um, doctors oftentimes will get second opinions for their patients, um, even without the patients going anywhere or traveling anywhere. So just this morning, I was, um, I, I was emailing uh, Dan Laheru, who's a very well-known medical oncologist at Johns Hopkins, about a patient that Ben George and I uh, take care of here at MCW, who wanted to get his opinion on access to a clinical trial. Um, uh, Urkut Berzansky at uh, Honor Health and Tgen 
we're in communication with ERCOT almost almost every other week, and we we ex we exchange information on patients who may or may not be eligible for clinical trials at our institutions. So so there's a lot of second opinion review, which goes on uh, uh, in the background on behalf of patients uh, virtually every day, and I think that's. Uh, important for everyone to understand that a lot of this happens uh, all the time. Um, I think one of the one of the big benefits of of our second opinion program is I think a lot of people um, want to know whether their tumor is operable. So um, this is a program that we started uh, when I was in Houston uh, many years ago, and when I came uh, to uh, MCW 12 years ago, we just continued it. Uh, and this this works as as Gabby and Lauren have mentioned. This works relatively seamlessly. Um, we uh, of course it's seamless because I don't do any of the work. Uh, Lauren and Gabby do do all of the work. So excuse me there. Um, but at, for example, uh, I see patients on Tuesday, and at the end of my Tuesday clinic, we'll then go over two or three patients. Um, uh, Gabby or Lauren have obviously done uh, and actually and Natalie now have, do a tremendous amount of work so that they present the patient to me. So they've, all, they've already researched the patient and, um, and describe what their treatment has been. And then we, then, uh, we review the CT scans. Oftentimes uh, the CT scans uh, involve a question of, uh, of whether the tumor is operable. Uh, if if uh, I feel comfortable uh, interpreting the scan myself, then I simply would communicate back to the referring doctor uh, and or the patient. And we, we make a phone call, write them a letter. We communicate uh, usually in a, in a number of ways. And then if I have a question over the, the images, then uh, I'll typically call one of our radiologists. Um, right now, uh, we provide this uh, free of charge for the pancreatic cancer community. Um, obviously, uh, this would be a much larger undertaking uh, in other disease sites uh, because pancreas cancer is a relatively low incident disease. This is something that, that we can manage. We would be thrilled to, um, uh, to expand this second opinion program. Uh, right now, we probably do um, uh, two or three second opinions a week. We would be thrilled to make that uh, six or seven. Uh, it certainly is completely doable. And I think it's, it's very helpful. I think people have, people derive a level of comfort when they know that uh, that their case has been looked at by more than just uh, one or two uh, physicians. I think the other area where people need to be aware is the multidisciplinary conference. So uh, this is something that I started uh, at MD Anderson now many, many years ago, uh, is a pancreas specific conference. And when I came here, we continued it. I think right now um, we have one of the most robust pancreatic cancer um, weekly multidisciplinary conferences probably in the world. Uh, we get together every Friday at 6.30 in the morning and, uh, and we spend 6.30 to seven going over uh, some of our challenges with uh, clinical trials. So patients who are struggling or having some problem on one of our clinical trials. And um, Haley, our, our nurse um, uh, coordinator for our clinical trial effort does just an amazing job of, of, of putting that together. And then at, at seven o'clock, we go over um, our patient uh, issues. So uh, we try to limit it to about 10 patients uh, between seven and eight, but we go, we re-review their films, re-review re their pathology, and we gain consensus over how they should be treated. 
and on any Friday, even during the pandemic, because everyone could dial in um, uh, through Zoom or, or, or WebEx, uh, we, have, we have probably at least uh, 15 physicians uh, and then probably between um, nurse practitioners, PAs, research nurses, and other interested parties, probably at least another 20 uh, people. So really you can see that every patient who is presented at our, um, at our weekly multidisciplinary conference gets the benefit of all of these minds, not only an, a re-review of their imaging by radiologists, typically different than the radiologists who may have read their initial scan, and oftentimes re-review of their pathology. So um, such, an, you know, such an important aspect of how we take care of, uh, of cancer patients. Uh, obviously, I think an institution has to have a large enough volume of pancreatic cancer patients to make this, to make this weekly conference possible and to devote the resources necessary for the infrastructure, et cetera. But um, I'm sorry to be so long-winded, but I wanted everyone who views this podcast to know that there's, there's multiple avenues for a second opinion, both the multidisciplinary conference at their, at their home institution, uh, as well as the networking that their, that, their, um, that their oncologist or their surgeon will do on their behalf uh, nationally, and then lastly, um, the ability of the patient to actually get on a plane or get in their car and go to another institution for a second opinion. I think all of those uh, are very valuable. And if, if the patient, you know, if they don't feel like their doctor is advocating for them, what would you say urge them to seek out that second opinion on their own? Yeah, I think, I think absolutely that there, um, that certainly is a good thing to do. I think oftentimes um, patients don't empower their, their oncologist or their surgeon to do that. Right. I think it, it can sometimes be a little bit of an uncomfortable conversation. Um, it, it, ironically, um, the more, the more educated patient, the patient who has looked into this more, um, actually oftentimes feels more comfortable. So, you know, some of our patients who who um, who ha ha know a lot about what we're doing, they know that um, that we have physicians at Johns Hopkins, at uh, at TGen in, in Arizona, at uh, at at Sloan Kettering, at MD Anderson that that we communicate with very frequently, and they'll they'll even just say, "Hey, have you have you talked to Dr. Borzanski about this? Have you talked to Dr. Wolf about this?" You know, I would really be uh, I would really be um, grateful if you could reach out to uh, Dr. Laheru, and so you know we we do that we do that seamlessly. I think um, for us um, we're humbled by this disease so often that we know that uh, there's little chance that individually we know everything, uh, and certainly collectively we'll oftentimes um, probably always come up with a better treatment recommendation when we do that collectively. Yeah, and like you mentioned, it, it can be an uncomfortable or it's already a scary situation for the patient. So I'm sure it's encouraging to hear that from um, your perspective, Dr. Evans, that uh, doctors yep. encourage it and, and want to speak out. Absolutely. I said that I would get you guys out in 30 minutes, so we've kind of gone over. <laughs> 
my allotted time. Is there anything that I missed? Anything that you guys want to add? I mean, the only thing I would add is that, um, you know, we're really lucky to have uh, to have nurse practitioners and PAs like uh, Lauren and Gabby. I mean, just I, I I can't tell you how important that is, and um, and it, it really is is the glue. It's the it's it's the magic. You know, the old saying, uh, "Teamwork makes the dream work." And I think um, at our institution, uh, the nurse practitioners and the PAs uh, are the uh, the teamwork that makes the dream work. Well, thank you all for so much for being here and for um, giving of your time. I know it's very valuable. So we appreciate it and hope you hope to have you back on the podcast. We'll do it. Miranda, thanks so much. Say hi to Roger. Yes, I will. All right. Thank you, okay. guys.